Welcome to part two of the history of Newport, Kentucky's Sin City. This is a fun one, isn't it? So last time we talked about so much crime and corruption and violence and, you know, there were some early attempts to get all of this immoral behavior reined in, but nothing stuck, you know? But as you can imagine, after decades of this violence and vice, there was a growing group of people who wanted things to change in Newport. And not just locals. This had captured the attention of Washington, D.C. So there was a senator, and I'm going to butcher this name. I should have looked it up. Estes Kefauver. Um, this was the Committee to Investigate Organized Crime and Interstate Commerce. And they started to hold hearings, and Newport was very much on their radar. During the public hearings, testimony revealed that the Cleveland Syndicate had really created this central hub in Newport. And um, they had the Newport Chief of Police testify, uh, Chief of Police Google, G-U-G-E-L. And he testified that he had never visited a gambling house in the city. Not once. He's never raided one. He's never gone in to give one a fine. Nothing. Sure. So interestingly enough, Google was represented by Charles Lester. If you'll recall, that's the attorney who had flipped on the Cleveland Syndicate to work with Peter Schmidt. The chief of police was also asked if he had ever seen the advertisements in the local newspapers for casinos. He testified that he didn't read the papers. <laughs> Campbell County judges testified that yes, they always charged the grand juries to investigate gambling, but they just couldn't get the juries to bring felony indictments. A jury, a jury would never indict these people, which is true. Newport City Manager, a guy named Malcolm Rhodes, great name, testified that before he took office, the city had been, quote, issuing brokerage licenses to bookmakers ranging from $350 to $8,090 a year, depending on the size of the operation. The money, under the guise of a payroll tax, went into the city treasury. Campbell County Sheriff Ray Diebold was challenged on whether he was doing his duty, which stated that, quote, a sheriff must visit every tavern, dance hall, and similar establishment once a month and cannot deputize anyone to make the inspection. To which the sheriff responded that he had just learned that that was his duty three weeks ago, and he hadn't had time to comply with that rule. So, you know, the sheriff just didn't know his job description, apparently. So, as you can imagine, the public is reading about this hearing going, wow, these people all know about this organized crime and they've been doing nothing about it and they are so corrupt. Locally, there was a group of clergymen from Kenton County next door uh, and they got the assistant AG, Jesse Lewis, to start investigating political corruption in Covington. They filed a lawsuit against the Commonwealth attorney and they started disbarment proceedings. And this was maybe an early signal that the tides were changing a little bit. The difference in Newport reform was that it came internally from people in the Cleveland syndicate and the like. They 
how do I explain this? They didn't want to be shut down completely. They wanted to be able to stay in operation. So they met with local businessmen and started the Newport Civic Association, which would field political candidates under the slogan, clean up, not close up. Okay. The way they explained it to these local businessmen, and they were absolutely right, by the way, is that closing these casinos would hurt everybody. It would hurt all the local businesses. It was in the grocer's and tailor's best interest to keep the casinos open. These men they ran for office did very well. They swept the elections. And while this was happening, some of the bigger names like Sam Tucker and Wilbur Clark were focusing their attention away from Newport and on newer projects in places like Miami and Vegas. And so Peter Schmidt took this as an opportunity. And so during these low-key reform attempts, he opened a new casino called the Glenn Schmidt Playtorium. Quote, However, the Cleveland Syndicate was still well represented in Newport through their newly elected reform government. The reformers thought Schmidt's opening of the Playtorium was just another act of defiance on his part. So, the NCA ordered a raid on Schmidt. In response, Charles Lester ordered a raid on the Cleveland Fours Merchant Club. This battle was just ongoing, seemingly never-ending. And when the next election came around, the Cleveland guys backing the NCA felt confident that their guys would be re-elected. But that's not what happened. Instead, a street minstrel, Robert Seidel, backed by Charles Lester and Peter Schmidt, was elected mayor. A strange sequence of events happens after this guy is elected mayor. Peter Schmidt makes a big miscalculation. He thought that because his guy was mayor, the police force would now be in his pocket and he could make them do whatever he wanted. So he approached this guy who was heading up the what would be now the crime unit, uh, Jack Team, and he basically asked team to work with him running organized crime in Newport. But this Jack team guy was not having it. So instead, he ordered a raid on Peter Schmidt's Platorium. But this wasn't just any other raid. It was going to be very expensive. And he didn't use Newport police because he knew they couldn't be trusted. So instead, team calls in a busload of detectives from Louisville and they're deputized on the way to Newport. But in a bizarre twist, team's deputized Louisville guys were all arrested by police chief Google. Team was also arrested on a litany of charges and taken into custody. And then, Screw Andrews, the guy who got away with murder multiple times, approached team and said, look, I can get you out of all of this. All you have to do is leave town. The team wasn't going to do that, so he went to trial. Sounds like the trial was just a total mess. A bunch of witnesses perjured themselves, and ultimately, it looks like he was acquitted, and he did leave town. So he goes to Vegas after that, and he works a security job for Ed Levinson at the Sands Casino. And after all of this, 
nothing has been accomplished. Still, organized crime was just chugging right along. And the politicians and the police are just kind of looking like a bunch of dummies. So in 1957, Esquire magazine published an article about Newport, calling it Sin Town and Cincinnati's Playground, mentioning the brothels, bust-out joints, and plush nightlife. It said the gambling industry was bringing over $30 million a year, and a million of that was going to payoffs and bribes. The article included a quote from a Newport resident who said this, quote, The better class will not get themselves involved. They are active in the PTA and charitable organizations, but they will not buck the vice overlords. Perhaps they are afraid their families will be hurt, or perhaps they realize that some of their husband's business prosperity comes indirectly from the money spent on vice. The fact is that much of our economy is dependent on vice, and the majority of our people would rather have the money than get rid of this reputation as America's most wicked city. A year after that Esquire article came out, a group of clergymen once again tried to take action. So this time they would form the Social Action Committee, SAC. And they went to a Campbell County grand jury and presented their evidence and tried to get people indicted. And this grand jury refused to indict anybody. So they came back a year later with even more evidence. Still nothing. And so it really wasn't these efforts from the reformers that made changes to Newport. What happened was, by the mid-50s, it was becoming much easier and much more commonplace to travel farther with planes, trains, and automobiles. So instead of a big vacation to Newport, Kentucky, you could go somewhere more exotic, like Florida. The other thing was that the big syndicates operating in Kentucky were looking at new opportunities, bigger opportunities in places like Vegas or Havana. Meyer Lansky was focused on Arizona, Florida, and the Bahamas. Mo Dallas was in Vegas. And so around this time, we do start to see a change in the landscape of Wicked Newport. Many of the clubs and casinos changed ownership, and they changed names. Lots of businesses converted to other services, but would still offer like a handbook on the side, for example. They were turning into things like tobacco shops. One turned into a lunch counter. You'd see bowling alleys and restaurants pop up. All of a sudden, there are some family-oriented things popping up in Newport. And so, again, all of these establishments, well, not all of them, but most of them would just have a small casino or handbook kind of hidden in the back. Peter Schmidt died in 1958, and his attorney friend, Charles Lester, took over his Platorium and other businesses. The Glen had been purchased before his death by a local guy named Tony Carinci, and this is a very important character. And while Tony Carinci owned it, um, the Glen was frequented by people like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. It was still a pretty big deal. But then came the 1960s, when the leaders of the larger operations had left Newport and left the locals scrambling to maintain the town's nightlife. 
So under the management of Tony Carinci, the Glen wasn't doing very well. And so he changed the name to the Tropicana and he added a strip show in the basement and he replaced the bookmaking operation with prostitutes and he put a huge neon sign with naked women in the front window. Meanwhile, the SAC was still trying to get all of this cleaned up and finally they caught a break when the presiding judge, who was a little crooked, got sick and was replaced by a judge from another county. This was Edward J. Hill. Uh, He was from Harlan County, and he was known as, quote, the judge who tamed bloody Harlan. So right off the bat, Edward Hill dissolved the old grand jury, because clearly they weren't willing to indict under any circumstances. And he convened a new grand jury in November of 1960, and he ordered the destruction of several slot machines, again, on the steps of the courthouse. And as soon as this went down, the casino owners and crooked politicians are looking at each other going, what's happening here? We have a problem. This new grand jury indicted Campbell County Sheriff Norbert Roll for nonfeasance. He actually denied that gambling even existed in the county, which is pretty bad. His trial would start in December of 1960. And the gambling establishments decided that they would close during his trial so that when he testified that there was no gambling going on, he would technically be telling the truth in that moment. Just kind of funny. Um, you, you guys aren't going to believe it. Even after all of this, he was acquitted. It took a jury 12 minutes to deliberate. Even though he got off, reformers saw this as a sign that even though he got to walk, the fact that we finally got to a trial was a sign that things were changing. Now, what was happening was the local businesses who had looked the other way when it came to vice operations in the previous decades were doing so because they knew those operations were increasing their sales, right, and their profits. But by the 1960s, with the big players gone and the local clubs struggling, these local businessmen started to realize that these vice operations weren't really helping them anymore. And so it might be time to take the town in a new direction, clean up the vice, and become a more desirable place for other types of people to both visit and to live. And so the reform movement saw the formation of this Committee of 500, which would actually have 2,500 members eventually. And their primary goal, starting out, was to find good, honest people to run for public office and replace all these crooked politicians who had made their way into these elected positions. This new push was different than in the past because they had some ground rules that really worked in their favor. They were religiously non-sectarian, so they weren't religiously motivated, or at least that's not what they ran on, and they were nonpartisan, and they were well-financed. They created this party that they called the Switch to Honesty Party, which just hilarious. And they had a reformer lawyer called, uh, his name was Henry Cook. He was their counsel. And they chose a man named George Ratterman to run for sheriff. Good old Mr. Ratterman. 
He was from Fort Thomas. His brother was a priest and the dean at Xavier University. His two brothers-in-law were attorneys, and his father-in-law was president of the Newport National Bank. Ratterman himself was an investment banker and a professional sportscaster. He had no experience in law enforcement, although he had studied law in college, but mostly I think people just felt like he was this wholesome, genuine character who came from a good family, and he would be a breath of fresh air for Newport. One guy who really was not into the idea of Ratterman becoming sheriff was attorney and now club owner Charles Lester. So he tried to organize the opposition. Quote, Lester, by now, was reportedly the brains behind most of the legal maneuvering protecting illegal operations in Newport. The FBI had reports that attorney Lester was depositing Newport gambling money in Swiss banks on tours to Europe. So, Ratterman was really up against three different factions of organized crime. There was the Cleveland Syndicate, who still had ownership interest in places like the Beverly Hills, Merchants Club, Yorkshire Club. But remember, their leaders had pretty much moved on. So this fight wasn't really their fight so much. They were way more concerned with Vegas. The second faction was the Independents, represented by Tony Carinci at the Flamingo, uh, owners of the Glen, etc. Charles Lester was in that group. And then the third faction was the, quote, prostitution rackets and the numbers in Newport and Cincinnati. This group was dominated by the killer, Screw Andrews. It was up to the conniving Lester and the not-so-bright Carinci to come up with a plan. I didn't call him not-so-bright. That was part of the quote, for the record. So on May 8, 1961... Potential Sheriff George Ratterman received a message from Tito Carinci. They had known each other for a long time through their football associations, and Carinci told Ratterman that he was ready to go straight. He wanted to get out of organized crime and be one of the good guys. A little aside, guys, I think I called him Tony Carinci earlier because that just flows really nicely. His name was Tito, Tito Carinci, okay? So here's where things get spicy. Tito has called George Ratterman, his old buddy, he says, I'm ready to go straight, we need to meet and talk. Okay. At 2.32 a.m. the following morning, an anonymous source called the police department and asked to speak with Detective Pat Chiafardini. I don't know if that's C-I-A-F-A-R-D-I-N-I, Chiafardini. He's allegedly told that there's prostitution going on at the Glen. So Chiafardini takes two of his guys to check it out, Detective Upshire White and Detective Joseph Quitter. So in the police report that's filed later, the three officers entered the hotel lobby and they were stopped by Tony Carinci. Tito, God, Tito. And so they arrested him, and they took him up with them to where this prostitution was supposedly taking place, which was room 314. What they found was, quote, one April Flowers, female, white, age 26, alias Juanita Jean Hodges, particularly clothes seated on a bed in the room, a robe pulled up around her waist, and one George William Ratterman, age 38 years. 
bombshell. Ratterman was wearing only a white shirt and a pair of socks, according to the report. They literally caught him with his pants down. Allegedly, Ratterman jumped from the bed and shoved Detective Chiappardini, who pushed him back on the bed. So they're all taken into custody. April is booked for prostitution, Carinci with breach of the peace, and George Ratterman with breach of the peace, disorderly conduct, and resisting arrest. Not a good look for someone running for sheriff on the reform ticket for the switch to honesty party. You can imagine the level of scandal. News of this reached Attorney General Robert Kennedy. Ronald Goldfarb from the Justice Department went to Kentucky the next day. The police started holding press conferences, and Carinci spoke to the press and said, Oh yeah, that George Ratterman? He's one of my regulars. He's in the club all the time. He's a sex fiend. But people are looking at textbook golden boy George Ratterman, and they're looking at sleazy club owner Tito Carinci, and they're thinking, this doesn't quite add up. Quote, The setup was so crude that it took only a matter of hours for it to unravel and for all hell to break loose. So, Ratterman was released from jail on bond, and his wife took him straight to the doctor because he was acting strange. He was out of it, incoherent. And the doctor said, you need to go to the hospital. So they go to the hospital. They took blood and urine samples, and in those samples, they found large traces of chloral hydrate. I'm sure you guys have heard the term slip em a mickey, a mickey fin. That's chloral hydrate. It was frequently used in bust-out joints, and that's what someone used on George Ratterman. Finally, when Ratterman was healthy enough later in the day to make a statement, he said he was drugged the night before, that he woke up in Tito Carinci's apartment in the Glen Hotel, he was pushed to the floor, and then he woke up to several men in the room and a woman he'd never seen before, and they wouldn't give him his pants. And then they wrapped him in bed covering and they took him to the station. He said Carinci had tried to approach him several times before, and he had told Carinci he didn't want to meet there, but Tito was persistent, and so he finally did, and he pretty much lost his memory right after getting there. So like I mentioned, this scandal had reached the radar of Robert Kennedy, and Kennedy was pretty off-put by this whole thing. And so he ended up sending 39 FBI agents to Newport, and that is when the town became Kennedy's, quote, primary target in the war on organized crime. After that, public support for reform skyrocketed. I mean, if Robert Kennedy says something needs to be fixed, it needs to be fixed. So the public, for the most part, sees plain as day that Ratterman was set up, but he still has to stand trial. So that started on May 16th, and the entire nation was watching. The trial was interesting because Ratterman actually could have gotten off on a technicality, The officers arrested him on a misdemeanor without a warrant, but if they did it that way, Ratterman might have looked guilty. They wanted to go through the entire proceeding so everyone could see very clearly that he was certainly innocent. 
Charles Lester, of course, was representing April Flowers and Tony Carinci, and he also could have gotten them off, but he too wanted the trial to go on, as an opportunity to hurt Ratterman's reputation. He even persuaded the judge to have their trials before Ratterman's. Ratterman's attorney found an extremely helpful surprise witness. This was a photographer named Thomas Withrow, who said he'd been approached by Charles Lester about two weeks before this all went down, and Lester wanted him to take some photos of a man and a woman at a later date. Initially, Withrow agreed and said that he was instructed to talk to a guy named Marty at the Glen Hotel, who explained that they would go up to this room, open the door, he would take the photos, and that was it. Later, though, Withrow had second thoughts about it and decided not to go through with it, and he told his family that if a guy named Marty called the house, tell him I'm not there. And Withrow's family members corroborated the story, and that alone was enough for Ratterman's case to be dismissed. Governor Combs was watching all this play out, too, and he's thinking, wait a minute, law enforcement was in on this, it's obvious. And so the governor opened an investigation, and he initiated removal proceedings of Sheriff Roll, Police Chief Google, and a couple of other guys. Two of them resigned before they even had a chance to be removed. The other two were found guilty and barred from holding public office again. Um, They were later pardoned, but I I don't think either of them ever ran again anyway. These removal hearings really stirred the pot, though. A madam named Hattie Jackson testified that she weekly paid off the Commonwealth attorney, Judge Murphy, Chief Google, Detective Chiafardini, and plenty of others. Once again, the tamer of Bloody Harlan, Judge Edward Hill, stepped in to preside over this case, and their grand jury returned 93 felony accounts in 19 indictments, which were faced by both casino operators and law enforcement on conspiracy charges. This time, even the mayor and the city manager were brought up on charges. And on top of all of this, the INS comes in to investigate whether any prostitutes had been imported into Newport across state lines, which is very likely. And then the IRS started investigating gambling operations to see if they were displaying the proper gambling stamps. Ten days after Ratterman's case was dismissed, Tito Carinci and his associate Tom Paisley were indicted for conspiring to have Ratterman arrested. And the funny thing about it is the presiding judge was Ray Murphy, who was also being investigated at the time. The Commonwealth attorney obviously didn't want to prosecute these guys. He was probably getting payoffs from them. And so he only called two witnesses. He made a very lame attempt to prosecute. And then Judge Murphy pleaded with the jury to find them not guilty. And that's what happened. But really, things were still just heating up. Because in 1961, Governor Combs declared a state of emergency and rounded up state police to go in and enforce the laws in Newport. And then in August, IRS agents raided the sportsman club, owned by Screw Andrews, and shut it down. And remember, I mentioned that Kennedy had sent an agent from the Justice Department, Ronald Goldfarb, to go to Newport and start cleaning things up. 
So Goldfarb ended up with these federal grand juries. There was one operating in Lexington and Covington, the other in Cincinnati. And they were doing three things. Investigating civil rights violations, specific operations in the Newport area, and illegal operations covering a broader area, including all of Cincinnati. So that first one was looking into whether Ratterman's civil rights had been violated by law enforcement during this setup, which they obviously had. But at first they were really concerned because they couldn't find much evidence to prove their case. Then one day, they got a phone call from none other than April Flowers, the prostitute involved in the setup. So she sits down with these guys from the Justice Department for four hours and she tells them what happened. She passed a lie detector test. Goldfarb went back to Washington to get a bill of indictment signed. And a few days before the November election, there's a blistering report announcing the indictment of Charles Lester, Tito Carinci, Detective Chiafardini, and others. And then comes election day. Quote, Newport was dark and deserted the day before the election. The casinos were padlocked, unemployed pimps, gamblers, and prostitutes, that is, those who had not already left for Vegas or the Bahamas, waited for the results. Messick reported that even before the election, every plane leaving Kentucky for Las Vegas had been crowded with gamblers hoping to find work. Did they think the election was a foregone conclusion? Or had they recognized what the Cleveland Syndicate and other organized crime figures already knew? The future was in Nevada, where gambling was legal. The results came in, and Ratterman was elected sheriff. Governor Combs announced his satisfaction with the results, and very immediately, the ABC board went straight to Newport to start pulling liquor licenses of the casinos with, with any minor infraction. And the Public Service Commission issued a regulation to permit phone companies to disconnect service from any place used for gambling or other illegal actions. So people were just getting their phones cut off. Um, the layoff betting operations moved to Terre Haute. Quote, illegal off-track and sports betting reportedly disappeared overnight. And in 1962, a mysterious fire consumed the Tropicana nightclub. That year brought a plethora of raids conducted by both local law and federal agents. Ex-Sheriff Roll was indicted on four counts of tax fraud. Screw Andrews and a few of his family members were indicted on 35 counts of wagering tax evasion. The conspiracy trial for violating Ratterman's civil rights started on June 5, 1962, in Covington. U.S. attorneys Goldfarb and Lynch represented the federal government, and four local lawyers represented Carinci, a guy named Bucheri, Lester, Chiafardini, and officers Quitter and White. April Flowers was the star witness. And after hearing from both sides, the jury deliberated for several days before announcing it was deadlocked. Quote, the judge refused the defendant's request for a mistrial after the prosecutors told him they were prepared to retry the case as soon as it was feasible. However, the shocked U.S. attorneys were not sure if Washington would give the go-ahead for a new trial. 
The verdict was another bizarre twist to events in Kentucky Sin City. Screw Andrews also had his trial in Covington. Um, Like I said, this one went better for prosecutors, and he was sentenced to six years. But um, the involvement of the federal government was really what finally brought an end to the illegal businesses flourishing in Newport. New anti-crime bills were being passed in Congress and rigidly enforced by the feds in Kentucky. And then the other thing that really helped was the invention of wiretapping. It made it much easier to catch people betting over the phone. The Justice Department estimated that illegal betting decreased by one-fifth nationally from 1961 to 1962, but the number of handbook licenses in Newport went from 149 in 1961 to just two the following year. Screw Andrews got out of prison in 1965. He reopened the Sportsman Club, this time as an illegal bingo hall, which was becoming more common at the time. But by 1968, the feds raided those too and shut them all down again, including the Sportsman's Club. It was reported that Newport's treasury lost about $100,000 in payroll taxes and licensing fees in 1961. The retail district declined. There's no doubt that Newport was taking an economic hit from all of this. But the Ratterman case was eventually retried in 1963, and this time the jury deliberated for three days. Charles Lester and his associate Buccieri were found guilty of conspiracy. Carinci and the three officers, Chiafardini, Quitter, and White, were all acquitted. Lester spent one year in prison. Uh, He was also disbarred. He appealed and lost. Uh, He tried to get reinstated as an attorney, and his application was denied. Carinci was also, uh, he was convicted of tax evasion, so he did get three years for that. Um, He left Newport after being released. He was arrested again in 1981, this time for dealing heroin, and he served five years of a 20-year sentence. Chiafardini retired from the Newport PD in 1972 as head of detectives, and he swore for the rest of his life that it wasn't a setup and that George Ratterman loved prostitutes. George Ratterman went on to run for Congress, but he lost and ended up moving to Colorado, where he lived until his death in 2007. So, Newport in the 1970s. Described in the book as Sleaze City. There were no big players left in Newport. It was all local, independent guys. And they were running strip shows, peep shows, prostitution, and video poker machines were popular. Quote, Organized crime had been replaced by disorganized vice operators willing to take advantage of the political situation and social conditions still existing in Newport. A consumer market, a community in need of profit-making businesses, and corruption. In 1980, the Kentucky Post wrote an article about the downtown Newport landscape. Quote, Today, Monmouth Street is lined with deserted storefronts, junk shops, chili parlors, and seven go-go bars. Peep shows and strip joints have replaced plush casinos. Monmouth Street gives Newport the look of a city in decline. 
I'll read you a couple names of clubs from the 70s and 80s. Uh, There was the Brass Mule Lounge, the Body Shop, the Mousetrap, Talk of the Town, the Brass Ass, the Pink Panther, and Dillinger's Lounge. There was one bar that was advertised as a piano bar that didn't even have a piano in it. It was a strip club. This was also around the time that X-rated movie theaters were gaining popularity. So you saw some of those pop up as well. But throughout the 80s, most of the aforementioned clubs were raided and shut down. And a lot of times their owners went to jail for promoting prostitution or selling drugs out of the clubs. The Cinema X Theater was raided seven times in one year. The owner was convicted four times and fined a total of $222,000. And even in the 80s, politicians were still being convicted for turning a blind eye to all of this, or even worse. A former mayor went to federal prison for six months for perjury and conspiracy to commit extortion. A public works director was sentenced to two years for extortion, and several contractors were found guilty of bribery. The police department was also riddled with corruption and scandal. Uh, A police chief was indicted for forgery and theft. It was just a mess. So in the 80s, NUPAC was formed, which was the Newport Political Action Committee. This was a group of reformers whose candidates won their elections, and they took charge in 1982. And they outlawed nudity in establishments that sold alcohol. They passed strict zoning ordinances about where these clubs could be and how many there could be in any given area. The police department had a newly appointed chief who took surveilling bars very seriously and made lots of arrests. So that's when you see those last changes really happening. By 1991, there were 12 exotic dancing clubs left. Uh, Two of them had to give up their liquor licenses. So by 1996, there were six left. There were three by 1999 and two by 2003. I'm guessing there probably aren't any left today, but I could be wrong. I haven't been to Newport in quite a while, but I do remember enjoying it the last time I was there because I went to the Newport Aquarium, which is lots of fun. So if you haven't been in a while, maybe you should visit. There's lots of shopping and restaurants, I think, so nice river views. Um, Also, be on the lookout for a follow-up to this episode in the next few days because I'm going to talk a little bit about some hauntings in Newport and their possible ties to its wicked history. All right, that's all I've got, folks. Thank you for listening, and until next time.